wherever in the world you are. Welcome to the Health Zone Show with Mihal O'Mahuna, where with each episode I explore interesting health and well-being topics with a thought-provoking guest. These topics can range from nutrition, relationships, spirituality, finance, creativity, mental health and much, much more, so that you can live a healthier, happier and more authentic life. Guests on the show vary from health experts, spiritual teachers, finance wizards, sports legends, to ordinary people with extraordinary lives. Find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show, or you can also join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, pin interest under The Health Zone. Check out our new updated website, www.thehealthzoneshow.com, and at the moment, you can receive a free copy of my latest ebook, Seven Ways to Boost Your Overall Well Being When You Join the Health Zone. Today, I'm talking with medical doctor and New York Times bestselling author, Lisa Rankin. Hello, Lisa. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. So tell me, Lisa, about your perfect storm. What actually happened there? Well, you know, it's interesting because I just went through the 10-year anniversary of this. So I've been kind of reliving the anniversary just from a place of gratitude to be able to look back at the perfect storm and see all of the gifts that came from it. And that was hard to do when it was actually happening. Um, So I gave birth to my daughter by C-section. And within two weeks, my... My dad was dying of a brain tumor, and he flew out to be with me for my surgery in California. And then my brother flew out to be with my father also because my dad was so sick. And my brother wound up in full-blown liver failure as a rare side effect of the antibiotic Cithromax that he was taking for a sinus infection. And so he was in the ICU. My dad was in hospice care, dying of a brain tumor. My 16-year-old dog died unexpectedly, and then my dad died of a brain tumor. And this all happened within a course of two weeks, so it was just like one trauma after another. And here I was with a newborn and a scar on my belly, and I was just kind of starting to come out of it. My my then-husband was the stay-home dad for our new baby, and he cut two fingers off his left hand with a table saw and couldn't take care of our baby. And I was working full-time as a doctor, working 72-hour call shifts, and I didn't even really get a a postpartum leave. I was was able to take a month off, but I had to be back in the hospital like several days after my dad's funeral when I was only four weeks postpartum and my my belly still hadn't healed. You know, and as as an OBGYN, we tell people if they have a C-section, they need to take, you know, three months off as a minimum and here I was you know four weeks out and back in the hospital doing 72-hour shifts and trying to wean my baby and it was just a really overwhelmingly traumatic time that kind of pushed me over the edge (laughs) from my my breakdown to my breakthrough you know tell me about your breakthrough Lisa what actually happened there well it took me a year but I wound up just kind of having a real full-on crisis. I became kind of suicidally depressed. I was taking seven medications for a whole host 
of health conditions that didn't include med- mental illness. I probably should have been on antidepressants, but I wasn't. Uh, but I was taking seven medications for a heart condition. I was having these bouts of paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia. My heart rate would go up to like 250, and they'd have to cardiovert me with electricity. I was having severe high blood pressure with my blood pressure like 180 over 110 on three medications. I had all kinds of severe allergies as well as some other health conditions. So my body was really rebelling. And, you know, like I said, my mental health was not stable. I was very depressed and overwhelmed. And I just didn't know how to take care of my baby. I didn't know how to take care of my life. I I was resenting my job as a doctor. I, you know, I would be delivering 30 babies in a weekend and I was so tired that I would get angry when somebody would come in and labor. I mean, that's how... That's how absurd it became, was I was just so depleted. I was running on empty, and everything in my programming from my both my upbringing and my medical training had taught me that to be a good person in the world, you have to give until you're depleted. Like, you should have no energy and no time and no money, and probably you're anemic because you just donated blood to the blood bank, and if so, then you're a good person going to heaven. And so, you know, I come from a family of doctors and missionaries, and then medical education, of course, you know, just reinforces that training that your needs as the doctor don't matter, that the patient is the only thing that matters. And I just couldn't, I couldn't survive my perfect storm without self-care, but I had no idea what that even meant. So I wound up um, quitting my job, and the, the story of how that happened is in my latest book, The Anatomy of Calling. It's sort of the the crucible of the story happened when I won't tell the whole story because it's a long story and I'll, I'll, it'll take it take too long. But but in essence, I was I was at my wit's end and was seriously contemplating suicide. And then I realized I was 24 weeks pregnant. And that if I was going to kill myself, I would be killing my baby. And I couldn't do that. And I was already sensing this beautiful being inside of me. And so, I mean, you could say my daughter literally saved my life. But I heard this little voice. And I had never heard a little voice like this before. And I heard this little voice. And it was the most unconditionally loving voice. And it said, sweetheart, you're going to have to quit your job. And I was like, what? I can't quit my job. I have a newborn baby. My husband isn't working. I pay all of the bills. Like, I spent 12 years training to do this. Like, I don't have any idea what else I would do to take care of my family. And the voice, again, was so gentle and so loving. And it said, you don't have to do it now. You just have to, right now, make peace with what's true. And I felt my whole nervous system relaxing. I just felt this wave, this ocean of peace and unconditional love come through me, and I knew that the voice was right. I knew that this was a truth, and it had that feeling of relief that we all feel when when we tap into something that's just true. It may not be a comfortable truth. It's an inconvenient truth, but it has that feeling of truth, and to be able to just stare into the face of the truth and recognize that it's real, um, takes us out of a form of denial that, you know, it's almost like we've been hiding the truth from ourselves because it's too uncomfortable to look at. But the minute I actually looked at it, it was a huge relief. So I wound up quitting my job and moving to the country in Monterey with my family and my little baby 
and I had no idea how I was going to pay the bills. I had to liquidate my retirement account and sell my house, and I had to pay a $120,000 malpractice tail in order to have the luxury of, of leaving my practice. So not only was I not earning money, but I had to spend money to quit, and I wound up $200,000 in debt. But it was literally, I was saving my own life. Like It did not feel like a courageous act. It felt like survival. So that was kind of that was the beginning of a 10-year journey that when I just went through the 10-year the anniversary of that, I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that that breakdown broke me open because I have the most extraordinary life now, and I feel so blessed to have been smacked senseless <laughs> by the cosmic two-by-four, because I think it took that. It took something that extreme to get my attention, to start to wake me up. And looking back on it, I'm just really grateful. How did you know it was the right decision at that time? I didn't. I had no idea. I mean, I just, I didn't know it was the right decision. It sounded like the stupidest, craziest thing I had ever heard. And if you had looked at my life two years after I quit, you would have said, wow, this was this is a cautionary tale. This woman has failed because I thought, I thought I would write a book. I thought, all right, I was a creative writing major in college. I'm a really good writer. I'll write a book. So I spent a year writing a book. And I got, I, it took me forever to get an agent. I finally got a literary agent. And she spent another year shopping my book to 30 publishers. And I got 30 beautiful rejection letters <laughs> from editors who said they loved my book and my writing was phenomenal but they had never heard of me and I had no platform and you can't sell a book if you don't have an audience and I nobody had ever heard of me and apparently it doesn't matter if you're a good writer <laughs> it matters whether you have a platform and so I was devastated because here I had told everybody like all right well I have a backup plan I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a book and I I failed I failed. I mean, my, my editor, my agent and I just took the manuscript pages and we like burned, burned them in a little release ceremony on the beach over margaritas and just cried over the failure because we both loved that book so much. So I thought, you know, this is it. I, um, I am a cautionary tale. Um, but somewhere, somewhere in the back of my heart, people have asked me this and it's hard to describe it's like I had this blind faith that somehow I was going to land butter side up. And it wasn't based on anything. I had no evidence. And I guess what I can say now, and this is one of the beautiful parts of my journey, now I can say that I have evidence-based faith. But in the beginning, it was absolutely blind faith in that force of love that told me I was going to have to quit my job. Like something in me knew that whatever force of love was giving me those very clear instructions was going to take care of me, and I didn't know what it was going to look like, and it was going to be a mystery, and I was going to have to trust the mystery. But I knew that the worst thing that could happen was that I would wind up living in my mother's basement with my, my husband and my newborn. Like, that she, she was not going to let me starve or be homeless. And that was the worst thing that could happen, and that kind of gave me courage because I was like, well, that's certainly not what I want. That would be a long fall from grace, from being a very highly respected medical doctor, owning her own house on the beach in San Diego, 
but I was willing to be humbled by my willingness to take a risk. And would you say that blind faith was something like intuition or was it something else, Lisa? I wouldn't have called it that then. What I what I came to call it is what I call my inner pilot light. <laughs> it's that divine spark that I think we all have inside of us and it it has great wisdom and it can show up as intuition. Sometimes because I was very out of touch with my inner wisdom, often it showed up as external guidance, as kind of signs from the universe or even the cosmic no, which may have been what my perfect storm was. It's, it's almost as if this, this conductor of this cosmic symphony is helping to orchestrate the inner and outer experience of the human life to direct us into the path of greatest flow, of greatest joy, of greatest soul growth. And if we're brave enough to kind of let go of thinking that we're in charge and that we have to control it all, then somehow we can we can be shown through inner and outer guidance. And it, it was more like that. It was more like I sensed that something was going to show me what was supposed to happen and that it wasn't up to me to figure it out and control it. And the times when I did try to figure it out and control it, like writing a book and trying to get it published, it didn't work. So I kept, I kept being guided to like surrender more, let go more, trust more. And that's what I mean when I say it was blind faith. Because it was like surrender and trust into what? Like it looks like my life is a complete disaster right now. And my husband still didn't have a job and we were running out of money and I had no idea what, what was going to happen. And it was absolutely terrifying, but it was you know, in, in the anatomy of a calling, I talk, I, I talk about the journey to finding and fulfilling one's calling as a kind of hero's journey using Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey. And there's a part of that journey that he calls the ordeal in the innermost cave. And for me, that ordeal was in the, the darkest part, the darkest night of my soul. It was that, that battle between faith and fear where they were like duking it out and fear is saying, look, you have failed. This is not working. Like faith let you down. This is, this cannot be trusted. And faith, blind faith still is there saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. And it was a, a, a very conflicted and extended inner journey that broke through at some point, and there's, again, I won't tell all the details because the stories, some of the details of the stories are quite mystical, which is why I wrote this book partly as a memoir. Um, but on the other side of that, it's like something, something broke through. And all of a sudden, a series of synchronicities and openings and mystical happenings started unfolding in a way that felt like a miracle. And that was in 2011, so this wasn't that long ago, <laughs> you know. Would you say, Lisa, it was something like a spiritual awakening or something like this? You know, that's such a vague term. I don't really know what that is. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means, spiritual awakening. So I try not to label these kinds of things because trying to give words to the numinous almost makes them smaller. Because if I call it a spiritual awakening, then somebody else is going to compare it to their idea of what a spiritual awakening is. And it may be nothing like my experience. 
so I don't know. I, I, I prefer to describe things in stories because stories carry a frequency. And you can tune into the vibration of the story and receive something akin to a transmission from the story that's not about me and my story. It's about you and your story, but it doesn't have to be limited by labels. I know you've done a lot of work around the area of health. What do you think is the most important part of our health? Well, I, I just agreed to do my fourth TEDx talk, and I, I've been saying no to TEDx talks because the format scares me, <laughs> the 18 minutes. But um, this one, that, that little voice that gives me guidance told me to say yes to this one because I'm going to do a TEDx talk on loneliness as a public health issue. And the reason for that is I honestly think that loneliness is the number one risk factor for our health. And, and when I say that to big audiences of people, there's dead silence in the room because people want me to say diet or exercise or yoga or meditation or something that they feel like they can control. And I think people feel helpless in the face of their loneliness. And it's a, it is a public health issue. We have lost, we are tribal people. We are biologically designed to live in a village where we're all supporting and helping each other in intergenerational communities, in these sort of soul tribes where we take care of each other. And that's how our nervous systems are made. And without that, you know, you get a single mother who's living by herself and raising her children, trying to work and raise the kids without good support, and she doesn't have much time to focus on her own relationships or her own self-care, and she's running around trying to navigate the details of life by herself her nervous system is going to be in chronic repetitive stress response. And as I wrote about in my book, Mind Over Medicine, the body is perfectly harmoniously equipped with natural self-healing mechanisms. And we know this. This is in every medical physiology text. This is not a mystical thing. We know that every day the body makes cancer cells. Every day, you know, the body is flooded with interference from, you know, bacteria and viruses and fungi and, and other uh, infectious agents that are threatening the system. We know that proteins break down. We know that there's, you know, aging mechanisms that are going on. And when the, the body's self-healing mechanisms are, are, are properly working, then all of those things get handled every day, and we don't even know it. We don't even know that we fought cancer. We, we cured our own cancer today. Or we, you know, cured our own pneumonia. But, and this is what a lot of people don't know, those natural self-healing mechanisms only operate, they're dependent on the state of the nervous system, and they only work when the autonomic nervous system is in the relaxation response or the parasympathetic nervous system. And in our culture, in modern culture, 70% of the time, the nervous system is in the sympathetic nervous system or the what, what uh, Walter Cannon at Harvard called the stress response or the fight-or-flight response. And whenever the body is in fight or flight, then the self-healing mechanisms are not working. So this is, this is a huge thing when you take that single mom who's in stress response. You know, and again, the average American is in stress response more than 50 times per day. And there's no need to be. The only biological function of the fight or flight response is it is an emergency response that's built into the nervous system so that we have the... Uh, the physical capacity to fight or flee when 
a tiger is chasing after us, when our physical body is at risk. But because of the nature of the mind and all of the mind chatter and all of the ruminating about the worst-case scenario, the mind can't tell the difference because the part of the the part of the brain that that operates the nervous system that activates the sympathetic stress response is the limbic system so it's the lizard brain it's very reptilian it's it's very primal and so the the limbic brain cannot tell the difference between a a fearful thought like i'm going to run out of money and a reality like there's a tiger chasing me and I have to get out of here. So, you know, when I say I think loneliness is the number one public health issue that nobody's talking about, that's what I'm talking about is we need to make some serious changes as a culture in how we choose to live our life if we want optimal health. And, yes, we it's important to eat a good diet and to exercise, and yoga and meditation are great because they put the nervous system into relaxation response but as long as you're living alone without adequate social support in social isolation or as long as you're in a job that's requiring you to betray your own integrity you're activating or you know if you're in toxic relationships then all of these things are activating the the stress response and no amount of diet or yoga or meditation is going to counteract that level of um, activation of the sympathetic nervous system that is going to deactivate the body's self-healing mechanisms. So those things are important, but you know, part of my calling in the world is to be a voice for the the things that influence our health that medical doctors don't tend to talk about. And my book, Mind Over Medicine, for all of the skeptics, is it's all science. It's it's all scientific evidence from the mainstream medical literature proving that that isn't just a theory that I have, that there's actually evidence that demonstrates that things like, you know, adequate social support and doing work that you love and feeling in touch with your calling or having a a deep sense of spiritual connection and, um, you know, feeling like you're in touch with, with source or, you know, having mental health in, in that you feel that sense of fulfillment and purpose that comes from knowing that you're being used as a vessel of love in the world. These kinds of things are quantifiably related to the physical health of the body, especially when we're talking about chronic illness, chronic pain, things like autoimmune disorders, um, you know, recovery from traumatic events like traumatic brain injury or stroke or heart disease, like or, you know, cancer treatment, all of these things cannot be neglected. And it's not to dismiss Western medicine. Like, you know, when my my then husband cut two fingers off his left hand, thank God for Western medicine because 10 hours in surgery with a microsurgeon, he has 10 fingers still. So I think Western medicine is very important in acute care. When someone's in a car accident, when someone has massive fractures, you know, when somebody cuts their fingers off, when somebody's in the middle of a heart attack or a stroke, Like, get me to an emergency room. But I don't think we do a very good job with chronic care or with mental health. And we over-medicate without getting to the root cause of why that person is at risk of illness in the first place. 
and I'm not somebody who says, I, I, I always want to make a disclaimer that says I'm not blaming people for their cancer or their heart disease or their inability to be cured from a chronic illness. That is not my message at all, and it can be really easily misunderstood because that would suggest that we're in control. And everything in my spiritual journey has shown me that I am not in control of my life. I, I participate. I get a vote. I can influence three-dimensional reality with my thoughts, beliefs, and feelings. But I'm, I'm not God. <laughs> I mean, I am, <laughs> but I'm not. I have that spark of divinity in me just like everybody else. So I can participate with consciousness. I can co-create. But I'm not, like, life is a mystery, and I can't ever anticipate what my soul's journey needs in order to become one with the divine. And so I, I always like to make sure that I'm not suggesting, like, oh, if you read my book and you do the six steps and you do everything that I say, then you're going to get cured. Because it's not, I don't think it's that simple, and I think it's actually quite dangerous that there are people offering these sort of law of attraction teachings that make you think that you can completely control your destiny by controlling your mind. And I think that is, like, we must be humble and curious about how the universe works without giving our power away uh, in order to understand that life is a mystery. At the moment, stress and depression in our society is actually at epidemic rates. What do you think is the reason for this is happening? Well, I think it's a real soul sickness. This is what the shamans in the indigenous tribes call this. It's a soul sickness. It's a symptom of being out of connection with the deep essence, the deep true essence of that divine spark within each of us. When we're, when we're aligned with that part of us, when we feel that divinity in, incarnate, when we feel that the embodiment of our own divinity then, you know, depression can be almost instantly healed when we're able to, and that can happen overnight. I've seen this happen where people have what you might call a spiritual awakening uh, or a near-death experience. We were talking about Anita Morjani beforehand, right? And Anita's a good friend of mine, and she's, her story is just incredible, right? Here's this woman who's dying of stage 4 cancer, and she was very unhappy in her life at the time, and she she died essentially had a near-death experience and then was given the option to either stay in the in the spirit realm or to come back into her body and she was told that if she came back into her body she would be freed from her cancer and and that's what happened and she and under the guidance of of medical professionals she had a a quote-unquote spontaneous remission from her stage four cancer and she's one of the most bright light happy fulfilled beings that I've ever met, at least on the circuit of, of speaking and, and writing books and such that in, in my circle. She, you know, so I, I have seen people who have had those, you know, and, and that just came from remembering who she was, like when she was on the other side and remembered that she is made of love, that we are all made of love, that we are connected to all that is, and that we're not this discrete, separate self suffering in our own little human condition. And it doesn't dismiss our humanity. Like I, I also get triggered by the, the people that employ all of these kind of spiritual bypassing techniques where it's all about positive thinking and we're just supposed to always be positive, think positive, and, 
and all of that, I, I, I think we're not supposed to skip the pain. The pain is part of the human experience, and there's a way to lean into the pain, to almost soften into the pain, as my friend Joni Borisenko said, where it, there's almost, there can be almost a deliciousness to grief because when you, when you dive all the way into grief or pain or loss, you realize that the only reason it hurts so much is because you love so much. And aren't we lucky to, to be able to love so much? So with regard to you know, mental illness and things like that, I think, once again, I think the rates of depression in this country are related to something much larger than the individual or the individual serotonin levels in the brain. I think it's really, we're talking about a cultural epidemic based on choices that we have made as a culture about what makes a good life. And I personally reject the what Charles Eisenstein calls the story of the people. I, the story of the people doesn't work for me. I mean, what, what I personally choose as far as what makes a good life is very radical when it comes to, you know, what society says makes a good life. And I've never been happier. <laughs> I've never been healthier. I don't, I'm down to half of the dose of one of my seven medications, and I think I know what, what would get me off that last half, and I'm not yet ready, <laughs> not yet ready to make that change. So I think we, we, as I said, I don't think we're in control, but I think we have a say. I think we get to participate in creating the lives that bring joy to our hearts, that put us in touch with our soul, that give us the courage to dive deep into the pain so that we can feel it and heal it all the way and the more we are willing to dive into the discomfort of human life what I find the more lightness there is the more levity and playfulness and giggles I, I just got back from Esalen Institute this weekend where I was hosting a birthday party for my daughter and her two little fairy sprite best friends and the three of them were just they were in, they were just a demonstration of what it, what human life can look like they were just giggles and hula hoops and playing in the bed swing and making art in the art barn and swimming naked in the hot springs and prancing around, you know, with just delight and joy emanating from them. And they impacted everybody at the at, at Esalen this weekend. There are probably a couple hundred people there. Everywhere they went, they were like little sparks of light, just I, I could just see them touching the hearts of all of these strangers who were just witnessing the magnificence of these unapologetically, divinely feminine beings of light. And the only way we as adults can get to that state is to be willing to go to the uncomfortable places. And this is what I found in my medical practice when I ended up going back and, and starting an integrative medicine practice and um, and working really deeply one-on-one -on -one doing essentially spiritual counseling with my patients is I found that when they were brave enough to actually go into the painful depths of what might be lying at the root cause of their illness, some of them started having quote-unquote spontaneous remissions. And that was part of what led me down the rabbit hole that led to Mind Over Medicine and then the follow-up book that I wrote to that, The Fear Cure, and now the latest, The Anatomy of a Calling. All of this has been part of that, part of the journey down that rabbit hole of what really makes us healthy and what really predisposes us to illness. And is there anything that we can do to participate 
in optimal health without trying to dominate or control life. And I'm now even further down the rabbit hole. I'm researching a, fur- a future book called Sacred Medicine, where I've been, because because my my feeling is that the greatest and potentially most miraculous seeming interventions are happening at the level of spiritual healing. That yes, diet and exercise can can help, um, and certainly taking an empowered path to a healing journey is beneficial. But some of the things that I'm witnessing by living with these shamans in Peru and going to work with Qigong masters from China and energy healers from Hawaii and, you know, I'm I'm talking to this man who treats people with these sacred geometry protocols that he delivers remotely based on this divine guidance that he gets from the organizing intelligence. I mean, the stuff that I'm witnessing is absolutely shattering my worldview is to put it lightly but it's it's giving me a real curiosity about what's possible about the nature of reality and the nature of the physical body and how it responds to trauma and how by doing deep trauma work by really going deeply into our repressed emotions by doing the deep spiritual work that allows us to reconnect with that inner source of light, that things that seem like miracles are possible. I I don't know that we can always control them, but they're possible, and I've witnessed them, and I've experienced it. The quote is coming up from me there that I heard maybe a a few years ago at this stage. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Do you think this is true? I agree with that. I do. I think... You know, so many of us are conditioned from childhood how to participate in a sick culture. And the sick culture tells us things like you should not do what you you love. You should do what makes you secure and stable and what earns you lots of money. You should um, commit to a relationship for the rest of your life in the name of marriage and being a good person, even if there's disresonance that puts the body into nervous in, the, the nervous system into stress response all the time. Even if that relationship has expired, then if you want to be a good person, you have to stick it out, especially for the children. You know, our culture teaches us things like exponential growth is a good thing in the culture no matter what. We always need the economy to grow. We always need to have more accumulation. We need to keep destroying the earth in order to... Um, you know, rape it of its resources. We need to continue to dominate other countries in order to exploit them for what they can give us in terms of natural resources so that we can continue our explosive growth. You know, uh, the, the whole American dream is built upon the story of separation, the story that we are separate from nature, we are separate from one another, we are the mind is separate from the body the spirit is separate from the human and that in order to be a success that we need to buy into that story of separation when all mystical traditions of all of the religions agree on the story of unity of oneness of we're all connected and we can't we can't harm another without harming the the the, the the planet body that 
you know, just like every cell in the human body is its own distinct organism, but also a part of a greater body, we as humans are part of this planet body, and all of us are interdependent on each other, including our relationships with the animals and with the plants and with the, the oceans and the mountains. And until we can shift from that me, me, me consciousness that is our, our sick culture, our, our sick culture says, you know, just do what's good for you and don't worry about whether it hurts somebody else or whether it harms the planet. But there's a, a collective shift that I think we are going through as a planet, as a species at least, where we are beginning to shift into that we consciousness, from me consciousness to we consciousness, from communa me to communa we, where the thing that we want the most is not so much what's just good for me as the individual, but what I genuinely want is what serves my village. And I live in a little village of 10 people with seven adults and three children in two houses on two acres. So that's my little village, right? And I, I, I love my village, and I love, I care about the well-being of my, my village. I live next door to my ex-husband and his girlfriend, and we share my daughter. And So I love my little village, but what if we extend that beyond my little village into the, the, the world village, where I care about the needs of my world village more than I care about my individual needs. And I'm part of that village, so my needs matter. It's not about denying my own needs the way I was taught when I was young or when I was in medical school. But it's about genuinely tending, becoming caretakers of Mother Earth and of all of her village inhabitants of all races and species. And what would that look like? So now we're talking not just about the health of the individual body, but about the health of the village and the health of the planet. And I don't think they're very different. I think the things that cause disease in this physical body of the human are not dissimilar to the things that cause disease on a global scale. Lisa, in your work with the Native Americans and the shamans, what learning or teachings have you found out from them? Oh, well, I would like to give you... <laughs> I... I um, I have a twofold answer to that. I, I certainly went on this journey in a bit of an idealized way where where I kind of was thinking, oh, this is going to be so exciting. I'm going to go and I'm going to work with all these spiritual healers and they're going to enlighten this, um, you know, delusioned medical doctor who bought into the system. <laughs> and honestly... Honestly, the biggest lesson that I've learned is that I have a great respect for the ethics of my profession. I've, I've encountered a whole lot of shadow in my journey um, because I, I, I think just because somebody has spiritual power doesn't mean they have spiritual ethic. So I would say the biggest teaching that I have learned has been discernment, that it's important for us not to be seduced by people who have spiritual power, who can perform things that look like miracles, but don't necessarily have the um, spiritual maturity to know how to do that with full ethic. And, you know, so, so that's been the shadow of what I've learned. On the lighter side, I think part of part of what I'm really learning is that 
we as humans are beings of energy. And on the physical level, when we are matter trying to influence matter, it's much harder, right? We're, we're very solid when, we're, when our vibration is low, when we're operating at a low vibration. And these are vibrations of fear and doubt and judgment. Um, when we're operating at those low vibrations, the density of matter is very dense. And when we become less matter, when we raise our vibration and we're really tuned in to that vibration of love, when we become beings of love, then we actually loosen the density of our matter. And as energy beings, we can influence matter more readily when we're less dense in form, which requires us to be operating at a higher vibration. And when we're operating at a higher vibration, then matter in our own bodies even can change form seemingly miraculously, such that somebody may have what looks like a spontaneous remission, and it happens as a result of a deep mystical experience that has raised their vibration to a threshold that makes it possible for them to experience what looks like an instantaneous healing. And I, I'm still, it's still hard for my mind because I have a very cognitive mind. I'm trained as a doctor from a very conventional background. My dad was a doctor. I went to Duke and Northwestern. You know, I grew up reading the, the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's still hard for my mind to translate that. But I also realize that if I, if I limit what I believe is possible to what I can explain with my mind, then I... Um, I limit my ability to stay open to things that are actually happening in reality. So I've had to make peace with the discomfort of witnessing things that my mind can't explain. Like I watched a Qigong master manifest herbs out of the palms of her empty hands. I, that shattered my worldview. I didn't know that you could create something out of nothing right in front of my eyes. I have it on video. I've seen it five times. Maybe she's just a magician, and it's a sleight of hand, and she's tricking me. She had short sleeves on. I've seen it over and over again. I've brought witnesses. I brought in a group of doctors to witness it. It's like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and people are taking these herbs and experiencing her healing and supposedly having remissions from stage 4 cancer. So I, I have had to really... Um, I don't know, I guess I've gone from thinking that I knew how the world work, works to thinking that life is a much greater mystery than I once was taught in medical school or in my very rigid kind of fundamentalist Christian upbringing. And that the more I stay open and curious and the more I am given opportunities to kind of experiment with what some might call spiritual superpowers, while also demonstrating my integrity and my unwillingness to abuse those powers. And some of the people that I've, there are people that would say that I have facilitated miraculous healings for them. I don't think it's me doing the healing. I think I'm just being used as a vessel, and it's not my calling to do that one-on-one. -on -one. I think I just was supposed to be shown that that's possible. But I think it's, it's, at least on my own journey, it's exceedingly critical 
that if one is going to dabble in the realms of that kind of power, one has to demonstrate one's willingness and ability and discernment in, in intention and in action to be aligned with a level of spiritual integrity that requires absolutely impeccable alignment. So I, I am holding to all of this pretty lightly these days because I am just a student. I'm just learning all of this. And I, you know, from the Hippocratic Oath that we all take as doctors, I'm very tuned into the, the aspect that says, first, do no harm. I know you mentioned there about vibration. If, say, any of our listeners are listening in today and they're going through a period of low vibration, what do you do in your own life to keep your vibration high? Well, again, as I said earlier, it's not even about attachment to, oh, I have to have a high vibration state because then that becomes yet another thing that the ego is grasping at, trying to control. So if, for example, if I one of my daily practices and I probably do this 10 times a day, and I learned it from one of my mentors, Tosha Silver. If I notice that I'm grasping at something I want, like if I'm sick and I'm grasping at cure, or you know, if I, if I want to meet the love of my life and I'm grasping at calling in the one, right? Uh, then, or if I have a problem and I think I need to control it, I need to solve this problem. Or if I'm trying to perseverate over a decision and my mind is trying to analyze the pros and cons, should I quit my job, should I not quit my job, should I leave my husband, should I not leave my husband, all of those are ways in which the mind, or you might call it the ego, is trying to control life to keep it inside your comfort zone. But all of those are vibrations that lower your vibration, and they actually make the co-creation process more difficult because again then you're then you're trying to create matter from matter and so part of my practice is a, a deep practice of spiritual surrender of making any desire or any problem or any decision an offering to the divine to ask my divine beloved to partner with me in creating the life that I'm meant to live and that may look like what I think I want or it may not Right, so it's one of my common prayers is, you know, I'm inclined to do this. So if it's aligned with the highest good for me to go to Peru, then help me. And if not, then stop me. And it, the key to that is really genuinely being grateful for either answer so that you're not trying to, you know, get, get the divine to give you what you want. As Tosha says, you know, God is not your Costco. (laughs) It's not about giving a shopping list to God. And this is what I see in a lot of the Law of Attraction teachings. It's like, here's the list of what I want. Now give it to me, God. That's not how I'm living my life. I'm actually much more interested in walking peacefully and curiously into the mystery and being willing to be surprised. But I do have desires and problems and preferences and decisions I'm trying to make. So... It's really just an offering of show me the way. Show me how my love can best serve in the world. Show me the relationships that I am needing in order for my soul to grow maximally. Like, let me stay open to even things that look like adversity because I know they're going to break me open. Let me be willing to go through pain in order to 
get to the ultimate higher vibration, which is not about resisting the things that may feel like low vibration states. Like we can't, we can't move beyond anger by repressing anger. You have to feel it. You have to move through it. You have to have healthy ways of expressing it. And I just lost five people I love in six weeks in this past fall, so it was almost like a second perfect storm. And I just kept, it was, a, it was an opportunity over and over again to practice that, of just letting go, letting go, and letting, letting grief break me open, and feeling it all the way so that I'm not using some spiritual principles to skip the almost unbearable pain of losing five people in six weeks. So I think the message of like, oh, well, now you need to keep your vibration high, so you need to quickly get out of any low vibration state. The only way that works permanently is to actually go into it and to go into it in community, ideally, and with a container of somebody facilitating that journey in ways that they have the experience to know how to handle somebody who's diving deep into past traumas and deep into grief and loss and anger in a, in a safe way with a, a container of a community to offer loving support and a facilitator who can make sure that people don't get lost in those, you know, aggressive or um, grief-stricken kinds of, of vibrations. Because they are. They're just vibrations. They're just movements of energy that are running through our bodies. But most of us have locked those past traumas in the body or we've repressed those emotions that we deem non-spiritual or not acceptable by society. And that's part of our sick culture. Part of our sick culture is that it tells us we're not supposed to feel. We're only supposed to feel good. We're only supposed to feel happy. And that all of our choices should just be about, you know, making whatever changes we have to make in order to quickly get rid of bad emotions and feel only good emotions. So you could probably tell from my my conversation, I'm very influenced by the sort of traditional Tantra yoga path, which is a path of non-rejection, where th this worldview holds that everything is sacred, that all human experiences are sacred, that the sacred and the profane are right next to each other, and that the resistance to life is is what causes the unnecessary suffering that that as the buddhists say pain is inevitable but suffering is optional and i think the suffering comes from resistance and i see this especially with sick people right when somebody is fighting their cancer right they're fighting it they're resisting it they're visualizing their white blood cells like fighting the cancer and it's this it's the metaphor of war but what I've seen is that the point where people actually become truly open to miraculous experiences is when they come into complete acceptance, where they can actually love and accept and maybe even feel grateful for their cancer, really, because they've seen how cancer has broken them open or they've seen how it's woken them up, and they're really actually grateful for that. So after all of my grief, my mantra going into the new year this year was, I am in agreement with life, and I resist nothing. Do you think, Lisa, that it's our ego that stops us from feeling these emotions and being truly authentic in the world? What stops us from feeling that? Well, I think part of us, I, I can certainly speak for myself, when I was going through that deep grief, literally, like, all but one of the five people who died were in their 
30s. They were young. They had horrible, like, things I judge as horrible, like, you know, violent deaths. Like, one of them was teaching a meditation retreat in Egypt, with, and he and 11 of his students were bombed by the Egyptian military. Right? So my mind or my ego judges that as that's horrible. That should not have happened. So I'm fighting life. Right? I'm saying that, no, that is wrong. That is tragic. Right? And, and that's resistance. I'm in resistance there. I'm resisting life. But it did happen. So no amount of resistance, <laughs> putting my energy into resistance, is not helpful. But what the resistance does is it's a defense mechanism, right? It protects me for a while from the actual feeling, which is huge, overwhelming grief, right? And it's easier to feel angry or to feel righteous or to judge that because that, kind of, that has a different energy, right? But if I actually really tune into what do I really feel, well, I really feel tremendous sadness. I feel huge loss and if I go into that and let myself feel that rather than resisting life then I'm actually and I'm not bypassing the grief I'm I'm moving through it and it, it comes through me my experience with grief is like it's like being in labor I mean I'm an OBGYN so it's a natural metaphor for me it's like I have these contractions of the heart and it, it literally hurts my heart I'm very empathic and I and I'm very I've done a lot of work to, to get back into my body after my medical education made me a walking cerebrum. So I literally feel it in my heart as this heart pain. And it feels like a pain in my heart that lasts about, if I just breathe through it, just like I'm having a contraction in my uterus, just like I'm giving birth. If I just breathe through it, then it only lasts about 90 seconds. And then I get a respite. And then depending on what's happening, I, it may come again. I may get another 90 seconds, and if I can just be with it and breathe through it, breathe through the heartbreak, breathe through the, the sadness, then another 90 seconds, and, and it goes. And sometimes those contractions will come very close together. But now it's been, I mean, that particular person died in September, so now it's been months, and I don't feel the contractions as much. But I may hear a song. Or I may have a dream and I may feel those contractions again. And if I'm just willing to let that energy of that painful feeling move through me, then I notice that it doesn't, it doesn't create armor. It doesn't block me from joy. It doesn't, um, it doesn't make me resist life. I don't make up stories that say that life should be different than it is. And it, it leads to, over time, with practice, and it is a practice, it leads to this almost when you're not having the contraction or even sometimes when you are, well, let me move back. Sometimes when I'm in deep grief, like when I was at one of these funerals and we were all together and we were all inside the container of a community of people grieving together and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to go down the hole of grief and I'm never going to come back. But what happened is that when I let myself slip down and down and down into the true pain, of losing this person that I loved, what I what I realized is that at the bottom of grief, it's only one cell layer away from joy. It feels like being very alive. It feels like a sort of vitality. Like the like I said, the only reason you feel that much pain is because 
you love someone that much. And when you're not resisting it, when you're just feeling it as a pure energy, then it feels very alive. And we walk, part of our sick culture is that we walk around numb. And so any experience that makes us feel alive is in some way vitalizing, even if it's a painful experience. Like, you know, an experience of really being able to express pure anger, as long as we're not hurting someone else, can feel very cathartic, right? Or to be able to just go all the way into grief at a funeral. And something happens. It's, like I said, it, it can um, it can create the opportunity for that unbearable lightness of being that those three little girls at Esalen were experiencing this weekend, just running around with no armor. And I guess I've decided it's worth it. It's worth living life unarmored because the joy makes the pain worth experiencing. And I don't know, but I don't know what, what your beliefs are, but I, I honestly believe that's why we're here in this body. That's why we're here you know, I, I know people that use spiritual techniques to escape life. You know, they use it as, as a way to avoid the pain to go into these transcendent states in meditation. But I think for me, at least, in this life, I'm here to be in this body, to have emotions and to have experiences and to go skiing and to have great sex and to go hiking and to just have the full range of the embodied human experience in ways that spirits can't have. And you know, when I'm on the other side of this human life, then maybe I'll get to do things as a spirit that humans can't do. But for now, I'm just trying to live all out so that when I look back on my deathbed, I can say I tasted every juicy drop of life and savored it all. If anybody listening in is starting say, a journey of self-healing, what steps do you think would be good for them to take? Well, specifically for self-healing, I would say um, my book, Mind Over Medicine, is very specific with that. I teach what I call the six steps for healing yourself. And the fear cure is really about the six steps to cultivating courage. So they're, they're similar. It's a similar exploration. Um, and then my latest book, The Anatomy of a Calling, is really all about sacred purpose, about stepping fully into your life purpose with courage and a, a willingness to be spiritually guided but specifically for a physical self-healing journey um, mind over medicine and you can find a lot of free resources for that at mindovermedicinebook.com and you can also order the book there and then my personal website is lissarankin.com I blog I, I have, we have about 110,000 people that read my blog and so I'm constantly like the cutting edge of, of my own exploration I'm always you know, publishing as I go. So that's kind of the best way to keep in touch with me. It's been a big pleasure talking with you today, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's been a pleasure. And just just the whole journey of, of working with these six steps, too. I've been running a training program for doctors and other healthcare providers called the Whole Health Medicine Institute, and we're enrolling for that now, too, for next year's class. And it's just been really really uh, awe-inspiring to witness what happens when people have the courage to put these practices into play in their own life and to really just let the journey of a physical healing journey um, break you open, to really allow adversity to be an opportunity for awakening. And, and, and that's what I've been witnessing over and over. So in that way, I think, and I just want to leave leave your anybody who's dealing with an illness with this, 
is that the ultimate journey is, is not necessarily about cure, although cure is a common side effect of the journey. But the ultimate journey is when one gets to the place where one isn't even attached to cure. I recently had, I run a mentoring program, and I recently had a client that took the mentoring program because she had stage 4 cancer and had decided to decline conventional treatment. And I knew that we had gotten to a good place where she said, I would love to be cured. I would love for my self-healing journey to work. But she said, honestly, if I die tomorrow, I've lived the greatest life and I have no regrets. And that's the moment for me where you realize that healing and curing aren't necessarily the same thing and you can be healed without being cured. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me and thank you all for having the courage to listen <laughs> to put some of these ideas into practice in your own life, as I know many of you already are. Thanks for listening to another inspiring and thought-provoking show of The Health Zone. I'm Mihal Mahuna. Just to remind you, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or you can join our Facebook group, The Health Zoners. We're also on Twitter, Instagram and pin interests under The Health Zone. To gain further invaluable resources on health and well-being, go to our website www.thehealthzoneshow.com When you're on there, join The Health Zone and you'll receive a free copy of my latest ebook. Seven ways to boost your overall well-being. Finally, I would love to hear any feedback you may have on the show, and even if there are any particular guests or topics which you're interested in, please email me on tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Until next time, this is Mihal. Thanks for listening, and I wish you a very healthy, happy, and authentic week. Baby, you're